Hello, and welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm your host, Wolf Tyvee, Editor-in-Chief at Palladium Magazine. I'm joined today by Associate Editor Matt Ellison and Managing Editor Ash Milton. Hey, everyone. Hey, Ash. Hey, guys. Hey, Matt. All right. Um, so we're going to talk today about Ash's recent article titled, Only the State Can Succeed at Decentralization taking kind of a bold thesis, uh, contrary to a lot of the usual rhetoric around decentralization, exploring the role of the state in in the organization of, of sort of different localities and the peripheries of society. Um, so we wanted to talk about that and delve a little bit deeper into that theory and that set of ideas and related issues. So Ash, could you give us a bit more on on what you were trying to do with that article, uh, just or, or like a summary of of the main ideas there to get us started? Yeah, sure. Um, basically, this article came out of um, a lot of the stuff that I'd written uh, before for Palladium and a number of the issues that we've discussed in an ongoing way that I've tweeted about and so on, having to do with uh, state capacity and with centralization and decentralization, the dynamic there, um, why you have people on both sides of that question adamantly showing results, um, which seems contradictory in the American context, where uh, centralization and decentralization are often considered the, you know, it, it, it's one or the other. Um, you have this happening across different fields, uh, economics, regional questions, uh, even social questions to a degree. Mm -hmm. um, this battle between what I call in the article uh, center and periphery. And uh, when I say periphery here, I don't so much mean marginalized uh, institutions or areas. I mean more just localized action. Um, so this, uh, you know, one of the ways that we discussed this at the beginning of the Palladium Project was in discussions we had about charter cities, uh, and I wrote a piece on that um, last year. Uh, and, yeah, and, and that and that was titled "Why uh, Why Charter Cities Won't Lead to Decentralized Governance." Yes, exactly. Um, and that was a very interesting piece because you know charter cities, in a lot of the discourse around them, um, had this brand and reputation of a, a kind of libertarian dream. You know, it was the idea of these free cities that were breaking loose from tired old centralized bureaucracies. Um, they could make their own laws. They could be economically freer, uh, have this cosmopolitan spirit, maybe. And yeah. when I actually looked at what was going on there, uh, this, this was not what was happening. Um, you, yeah. you look at the actually existing, you know, special economic zones in China, which is what influenced a lot of these cities like uh, Dubai or Abu Dhabi uh, in the UAE. And what actually is happening there is uh, central power using these localized areas, uh, these free zones of various kinds, to circumvent um, stagnant or oppositional mid-level bureaucracies and implement reforms that they are not able to do through the usual means. So decentralization, where it's been successful, is coming from the center rather than against the center. And in this article, I wanted to take that observation and start um, applying it and doing some analysis in the American context. 
Yeah, and, and to situate ourselves a little bit here, the discussion around charter cities was really kind of a Silicon Valley thing, I think, from what I understand. It was like, it almost grew out of the seasteading ideas, like the idea Yeah, of, that was its of, most radical expression, probably. Right, like, like you're, you, it's this very like libertarian, techno-futurist kind of thing where, yeah. where you're trying to get away from these tired old central... Uh, central governments and you know they're they're not letting you you know not pay taxes or like do the drugs that you want to do or whatever right it is that well you, that, I, that is the and, the most utopian uh form probably there has been a a normalization you could say of the charter cities so the charter cities institute for example which mark loder runs focuses more on institution building and policy so th there has been kind of a move away from the the radical branding and into more of a a focus on how charter cities can create development or grow uh state capacity even yeah um but that that is a, a more recent move in that yeah and, and that's that's like it it really kind of uh the idea and and the general conversation sort of in silicon valley has been maturing a lot over time Mm -hmm. um like you know like i said it starts with this very radical kind of utopian and, and in fact very naive vision of of you know we're going to go live on a boat somewhere and like do things that the government will let us do um and then that sort of that idea kind of like takes off the pajamas and puts on a suit mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and uh you end up with charter cities um but but i think the point of your original article was okay well even the charter cities idea still has a lot of this kind of um anti-center narrative attached yeah. to it and baggage and that's all reflected in the successful examples yeah and, and that's not actually what's going on here like if there's actually a a value proposition here it's a value proposition for central powers to kind of create something that increases their um their strength not sort of this idea of we're going to come in and create this strong independent thing on someone else's territory that somehow they're going to allow Right. Well, and even with innovation more broadly, so uh, in in the cases of successful um, special economic zones, uh, which is what they more usually are in terms of their institutional structure, um, what's going on here is these areas are being opened up for foreign investment. Yeah, um, well, special so economic that zones in particular. Right. So that com companies can, uh, you know, in like invest capital into a country where capital development was low. This was China's situation um, in the 70s and 80s still. Um, but I, I think that the part of the idea or maybe the attraction behind those cities uh, was also that there was a sense that innovation would really uh, skyrocket. It, it, it would accelerate um, in these cities where you maybe did not have government uh, or, or bureaucracy uh, and regulation uh, putting obstacles in the way of innovators. And that also is actually uh, a pretty ahistorical view. So mm -hmm. another instance of this logic, I covered somewhat in my uh, book review of Mariana Mazzucato's The Value of Everything. And, uh, you know, I was looking at a number of the, the great innovations in American history there, um, which he covers uh, in the work, and what's actually happening there is that the experimentation that is going on, a lot of the funding and a lot of the institutional structures that are created um, in order to actually take on this high-risk innovation is coming from the center as well, as coming from the public sector, coming from the federal right. government, agencies like DARPA, and so on. So I 
kind of across these different fields, you start seeing the same logic playing out where successful uh, center and periphery are operating together rather than against each other. Uh, and that is probably the, the contrarian take that I tried to take in this piece. Yeah, that's definitely the central reframing i think and that's the strong point of this piece right is that you have the advancing of of a new idea about how the center can relate to the periphery right so that um whereas the more libertarian concept might be uh in the logic of the federal government um, being opposed to uh, these cities or these charter mm -hmm. cities or some seasteading, the idea being that you would want to free yourself from this central power. Mm -hmm. um, I, the the point that that came across to me in this piece is that no, that's the way that these things work in in balance or or for the for the benefit of the of the whole system, the whole economy, the whole society is really when they uh when when the periphery um is understood by the center to be um in its own interest right that the strengthening yeah. of uh of a charter city the strengthening of a special economic zone is actually in the interest of the whole system yeah, yeah and a point i'd like to make here is that uh you know by by the nature of this article when i was referring to centers uh, i was talking about uh, states generally in the American state more specifically, but that's not necessarily, you know, or rather that's only one example of a center and periphery. Um, you can look at the same dynamic in the private sector. So look at uh, an institution like Bell Labs or look at the way that Amazon is structured today. Amazon is obviously coordinated um, by, by Bezos, by its top management but it works in this very decentralized way with different teams, different departments um, that have a lot of independence on projects. Um, and, you know, earlier on with Bell Labs, who were able to take risks because of the powerful position of the company. Um, so it's not just a political principle, but I think that uh, in the private sector, especially in the tech sector, a lot of firms have continued to structure themselves around this logic in a way that states haven't, uh, at least in the West. And in the American case, I think the problem is that there's been for decades now um, this ideological line kind of on both sides where um, in, in any really politicized issue of center versus periphery, um, the sides are locked against each other. They're not seen as even potentially... Uh, self-reinforcing. And the main principle I wanted to communicate here is that um, a dynamic state, one that sees itself as a system and sees the country that it's governing as also a system, would try to create positive feedback loops uh, in, in its policies. And an example I use here is the American system of the 19th century, uh, which lasted in, in its remnant forms kind of into the early 20th century even. And uh, it was a made up of a mix of policies, of, of tariffs, of internal development. But the key thing here is that the American system's logic was built on the idea that local or regional development or the development of particular industries ultimately strengthened both the country and uh, the federal power globally uh, as a whole. 
and and that's I think a much more useful view than uh, the the kind of factionalized state politics uh, yeah, that America and, has today. Yeah, and and if we sort of like delve into that idea a little bit, it's this like you're seeing your political interests, like, like if you're the center, for example, you're seeing your political interests and your power interests in a much more inclusive way, right? You're not seeing it as this opposition between government and society, but rather government is governing society and, and sees society as an asset and is is building up the parts of that society that that ultimately make the whole system stronger. And so sort of seeing those things in a holistic, integrated, inclusive way rather than a, like like this kind of um, oppositional way. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's a very important idea. I think it's something we have to recover in, in our thinking about state and and society and and all the issues that we think about. But part of this is like, how did we get that weird idea of the opposition in the first place? So something happened in the 1970s. Like I always sort of blame 1973. It seems like there was this big shift in how how uh you know we we thought about and organized our our society um and then at the same time or or sort of around the same time period we have the rise of libertarianism the small government idea uh like small government versus big government being the the sort of paradigm that we use to analyze this issue um and then in silicon valley i think like i think the reason we're like critiquing sort of these Silicon Valley ideas like charter cities and seasteading and so on is that really those ideas kind of reached their reached some of their highest expression in the Silicon Valley area where it's not like this stuff is coming from Silicon Valley necessarily but that it was just like most prevalent there this idea of libertarianism well and let's note here that um that actually comes from uh, a kind of ignorance of silicon valley's own history right because silicon valley as an ecosystem developed because a lot of these uh bald innovation projects which had significant federal involvement um for you know for military for other reasons uh and and silicon valley would not exist without that collaboration with the center yeah uh, in its early years I either sort of um, ignorance or, or disowning, but I think Matt had something to say on this. Right, you have this uh, a very strong thread of Ayn Randian objectivism in 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 the in the nineteen seventies and eighties. You know, this idea maybe uh, hits its high water mark with John Perry Barlow and the Declaration mm-hmm. of the Independence of Cyberspace. Right, yeah. right? this idea that um, that no, these are these technology platforms that we're creating are not like the old, you know, restrictions of power and the state and government. You know, we we are creating some new uh we're creating some new uh reality in some sense yeah, that does not have to operate by thing. these old uh you know, these old power uh dynamics. We don't have to think about traditional politics. Um and I think um at the same time um We've been thinking a lot this week, especially behind the scenes at Palladium, about monopolies and uh, and sort of what happened um, with antitrust regimes uh, and enforcement over mm-hmm. the course of the 20th century. One of the things that strikes me as having happened in the 70s was where the public interest as being a political force that guided uh, decisions about regulation 
um, what the role of Wall Street and the financial uh, economy should be vis-a-vis the rest of the state and the rest of the economy, that that translates over, uh, you know, by the 1980s, by the Reagan administration into, you know, yes, like you said a minute ago, Wolf, uh, big government is bad. Really what that means in some sense is that big government is bad, but we're going to take big finance as its replacement. Yeah. Right. So it's, 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 uh, it's in some sense, you could, maybe it's a propaganda trick. I don't know. Um, but I think, uh, the, the question, right. Is always like, uh, the politics never really goes away. It's sort of a question of who has power within the system. Um, and where, um, who, where is that located? I think that there's um, a read one can give of neoliberalism. And I mean, that, that concept is, uh, I definitely think, uh, overused. And maybe it's even given a little too much causative power in everything that's going on. But insofar as there are ideological moves and decisions, I wonder to what extent the this transference of power from like the late 70s up until the late 90s, early 2000s uh, into bodies like the Federal Reserve and the, the banks that have relationships with it um, and other bodies as well uh, is kind of an attempt to remove the actual governing power from the public sphere and transfer it not out of government but let's say out of um, the the public part of government over those that have kind of a direct accountability or a direct formalization. So the Federal Reserve uh, exercises a fair bit of independence uh, in its policies and, uh, you know, the, the, the relationships that it has with um, private banks are not really accessible um, either to the public and even large parts of the elected structures, uh, like the Congress, Senate, and executive in the U.S. government. Um, and so basically what's happening is that you're not really getting a decentralization of government that leaves it smaller. Um, instead, multiple centers of power are now being created throughout these permanent institutions of the U.S. Uh, government. And each of them has to now grow. You know, why, why does America have so many intelligence agencies? It's because multiple different actors have to create their own agencies um, in order for them to feel like they have ownership and control over that particular agency. Uh, likewise, you have all these powerful different lobbies, regulatory agencies, and the like, precisely because there has been decentralization towards non-ownership of power, I think. Um, and, right. you know, when we're discussing monopolies, I think this is just another instance of this. Uh, why do private equity firms have so much voice in the way that the COVID-19 bailouts are going to be structured? Um, well, they're best placed to access the decision-making mechanisms, and they also have the strongest incentive because uh, as things currently stand, they will be able to go on a capital buying spree and uh, receive a lot of the money before it flows anywhere else. Right. And in point of historical fact, the reason the Fed was created in the first place in the early 1900s was because this view that the politicians could not be trusted 
with monetary policy, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, um, uh, this is something that needs to sort of be outside of the, of the cycles of democratic, um, politics and controlled by, um, this, this relatively independent agency, um, you know, the question of the Fed, right, of whether it's private or public is also this interesting question. Um, surely the president of the United States appoints um, the chairman of the Fed um, and has, and to that extent, that has some control over the composition of the board of governors of the Federal Reserve. But the system itself is set up to be governed basically by the largest financial institutions in the country um, with very little day-to-day intervention by any elected politician, whether it's um, the president or Congress or, or, or anyone else. And so I think this idea of, um, you know, what's inside the realm of politics, what's outside the realm of politics, um, who has power within the system and maybe it's a good thing for the sake of the stability of the financial um, markets and, and, and the economy as a whole that, that, um, you know, congressmen who are seeking reelection every two to, to six years do not have an ability to sort of put their, their, um, their fingers on the scales of uh, monetary policy at the same time, you know, we we give them power over so much of the economy and so much of the state um you know uh there's this question yeah. of well why should for instance foreign policy then be uh you know it be um able to be you know imp- influenced in that re- regard why should uh the fiscal policy be influenced in that regard yeah you know? well the the argument that like you can't trust the politicians with government is like there's some merit to that argument um like it's kind of crazy to have like a new guy every few years kind of uh you know there's there's not really a a good succession unless you know for most of the elected people in congress senate and executive um, you know, I mean, in the executive, they're only there a maximum of eight years. Uh, and, you know, how many lifetime politicians do you really get in the Congress and Senate? Um, there's this catch-22 where, you know, those who are real outsiders uh, and who try to come into power on the, the premise that they're going to finally discipline these different parts of, of uh, the permanent structures and the government are often not able to make it happen. Whereas those who kind of over a long political career accumulate the power to make those kinds of deals no longer have the incentive to establish real ownership. I mean, even uh, lifers, you know, you you look at uh, people like the Clintons um, or or John McCain, for example, uh, who all people had very long political careers, all of them ultimately became dependent on coalitions within those permanent structures as well. And so it's quite difficult to see who can establish coordination in the American structure, which is literally built on the principle that you have these checks and balances that stop anyone uh, really taking full control of the thing. Yeah, and and so the the unelected permanent parts, the the agencies and so on, do have continuity 
because they are not really subject, at least in practice, to those kinds of checks and balances. Um, but the the formal parts who are meant to be overseeing these things and who are meant to be, in some sense, the basis of legitimacy, uh, are not able to create that kind of coordination and succession. Yeah, well, it, it's like again, there's 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 this huge problem. It's like the with these coalitional dynamics and with the electoral dynamics, you can't you can't rely on the politicians, but then that leaves you without any coordinating structure. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like you've got these you've spun out these parts like the Fed and, you know, it's sort of friends with Wall Street. You've spun out like the military industrial complex, all these different parts of the state that that sort of are no longer talking to each other. And this comes back to the the issue of all those intelligence agencies. Well, why do we need 17 intelligence agencies? Because there's 17 different parts of the government that don't trust each other. Right. Like. Right. Or they just have their own spheres of influence. They have their they need their own sort of a permanent uh, yeah, bureaucracy. Like like basically they're not working well to, well enough together to like share right. I mean they share information but but like not in a not in a not centralized to, well the yeah, the irony right is that the, the it's called the central intelligence agency for a reason right that yeah. was the idea uh, in the 1940s was that yeah. we needed a centralized we intelligence <laughs> yeah. uh, apparatus if only we had a CIA <laughs> yeah, I mean, what we really need is, is you know, you spin out something like the Fed, except its job is the coordination of all the different parts of the state. And, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it, we'll, we'll call it the government. Um, and, you know, it'll, it'll just do its thing and coordinate all the different parts of the state. I, I think it'd be, let's take a look at the results here too, right? Because what ends up happening is that you have a number of these structures that are kind of maliciously decentralized um, but which are still powerful enough to distort decision-making. Um, and you have kind of the worst of both worlds in this case, where, mm -hmm. you know, parts have an extremely centralized regulatory or administrative power, um, but do not have ownership or responsibility and cannot coordinate on the central level. And so, you know, you look at uh, the FDA and how its regulations were not able to coordinate effectively um, across private response to the COVID crisis. You can look at uh, military technology, right? How kind of uh, political favors end up literally determining the planning of fighter jets. Um, you know, in all of these different cases, you have a worst of both worlds. And so the image that I wanted to portray in the article was of a an American state which had a real coordination at the center and thereby was able to decentralize in, in a real way. So, you know, having authority remain central, but um, being able to grant uh, resources or, or in infrastructure or institutional guidance for real local experimentation to occur, um, that, I think, reconciles that dichotomy but, uh, you know, b before one even can talk about how do you reform the existing structure, you kind of need to have this uh, ideal, at least in mind. And I think even the ideal does not exist uh, in, in the American discourse in a lot of ways. Right. When we think about the worst of all possible worlds, or maybe the world that we're living in now, it's something like neither the center nor the periphery has all that much power. Rather, the power is in these... Uh, 
relatively poorly understood bureaucracies, uh, these lobbying interests, the many different ways in which um, state capture is going on, whether to the extent that it's recognized or not. Um, I think the strong point of the piece is something like, well, we need to strengthen both the center and the periphery at the expense, perhaps, if there is a if there is a a loser here, if there is some place that has to give, it's it's all of these you know intermediary mechanisms. Right. That, we could uh, call it. Uh, I don't use the term in the article, but the on the zombie middle, uh, basically, <laughs> um, might have to give in this way because that those are the remnants of. De- of malicious decentralization and i generally suspect that it's easier to build new institutions rather than um trying to save a lot of the old ones um i mean there is probably a fair bit of institutional knowledge that can be transferred but i think this is a bit of a different project yeah the core problem with those like that zombie middle or the zombie machine or whatever you want to call it is like it's it's this collection of powers that have more power than they have coordination or holistic interest like they each have their own little provincial interest they have enough power to kind of defend that provincial interest but they don't have enough coordination with the others to kind of tap into any holistic interest or public interest Um, and that means you end up you know necessarily kind of in this managed decline scenario where you're not these these separate powers are just kind of gutting the public interest um and, and you know to their relatively short term advantage but mm-hmm. but it's like totally unsustainable yeah. in the long run i i think it may be useful here to um chat a bit about the two case studies i give for alternative models so china and taiwan um and and i think part of what inspired this piece was looking at uh some of the East Asian models generally, but particularly the response of the Taiwanese government um, in Taipei. I, I think that uh, I'm, I'm seeing now a lot more discussion coming out about it, um, particularly in light of the recent uh, the scandal with the World Health Organization, um, kind of, you know, mm-hmm. this guy pretending not to hear questions about Taiwan's involvement. Right. Um, but I, I think that uh, both the PRC and the Taiwanese government represent models of a kind of um, dynamic relationship between center and periphery, but in very different ways. And so what that tells us is that there's not kind of one way of looking at this. There's different ways this logic plays out. So China, um, right, is is very top down. Um, The Chinese Communist Party is generally suspicious of localized action that is not strictly economic. Um, in the special economic zones, they trust the institutions because they set them up and they trust people to do quite well at, uh, you know, starting businesses, um, maybe stealing American technology, uh, generating wealth. But in terms of like social or, or especially political action, um, if it's not controlled by the party, it's, it's seen as uh, potentially destabilizing. That's the great fear of the CCP. Nevertheless, uh, they were able to respond um, later. You know, they had originally suppressed information about the outbreak, um, but once you know they they had to respond publicly, they very quickly shut down uh, um, the the internal borders uh, around 
uh, I, I don't recall actually if it was Wuhan or uh, or the province. Hubei. Um, the province it was Hubei. Hubei. Yes, yeah. Uh, they shut down uh, the internal borders on Hubei, and in the rest of the country, they actually had um, a much more effective response than they had initially in Hubei itself. But it was a top-down response, and uh, you know the the way that China thinks about this is that they want to have a very conscious central understanding of the theory behind the decisions they're making. And I kind of have this comment I make in the piece that China is the world's foremost Hegelian and modernist state. Mm -hmm. And what I kind of mean by that is that, you know, China um, sees itself as uh, having a scientific approach to governance in a sense. They have a particular mission in mind, which is this rejuvenation of China, its restoration of power on the world stage. And socialism for them is a tool to do this. And so they are always looking at this kind of feedback coming to the party and updating the structures that they create. But at the end of the day, this is very top down. We can look at Taiwan, on the other hand, and it, it is not as top down at all. I mean, there is still strong coordination from the center. Um, and state and, and strong state capacity from the Taiwanese government. So that is a strong center that exists. But the culture of Taiwan is a lot more open to local action. Uh, it's more democratic generally. Uh, and so we saw in Taiwan, um, the response by the government depended a lot on digital technologies, um, which is an area in which the Taiwanese government has a lot of competency because uh, they brought a, a number of hackers uh, and we can go into this a bit later, maybe into the government itself. Um, and people, you know, there were apps coming out where people were voluntarily sharing information uh, about their symptoms, about the availability of supplies like masks. And so there was a deeper trust by the Taiwanese government of its own people. And so the way the same model played out there was that there was a lot of direct kind of high trust coordination in the periphery itself with the government um, kind of coordinating in the sense of providing platforms and uh, means by which data could be shared. Uh, and, and so these, for me, in writing this, were kind of like two ends of a spectrum of what this model can look like. I think it's very interesting, right? Because as much as we can talk about the differences between the PRC, China, you know, Beijing, and Taiwan, nationalist China, uh, the real comparison may be the way in which actually both nationalist and communist China, if you will, are relatively similar in some sort of fundamental outlook about governance and about the 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 sort of ends and means of the state, right? Um, as it relates to these more uh, Western um, Western ideological um, conceptions that we we sort of started mm -hmm. off by talking about. One of the things that strikes me is actually, as a historical point, right, that there was a period um, for much of the middle of the twentieth century when uh, the the communists and the nationalists in China, um, basically, you know, Mao and and Shanghai Czech, uh, had to basically work together, right, uh, in order to amass power. Of course, there's this huge civil war that that um, that um, blows up, but I think th there's a way in which you can see um, communist China post uh, Deng Xiaoping 
as well as Taiwan, you know, um, from from a similar period forward, as largely pursuing very similar high level objectives as it relates to um, economic development and international uh, positioning. Of course, there's there's a lot of uh, structural and geopolitical differences that have to do with, you know, the difference between being uh, limited in in the scope of what you can do by the island of Formosa versus having, you know, half of the Eurasian continent uh, sort of under your your direct control in some sense. Um, but I'm struck actually by the similarities between PRC and Taiwan as much as the differences. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, part of this is because um, the, the reform period um, changes that happened in the Chinese approach were in part uh, the result of looking at um, you know, officially places like Hong Kong and Singapore, I'm sure unofficially they were looking at Taiwan as well. And, you know, taking the view that uh, given that these places had been more successful at economic development, therefore some of these policies should be undertaken, right? So there, there's the famous quote by Deng Xiaoping about, um, you know, it doesn't matter whether the cat is white or black. Uh, mm-hmm. What matters is that it catches mice well, the, specifically, you know, what the concerns of the party were at that time were economic development. And, you know, one of the party thinkers that I mentioned in the section on China talks about how um, the purpose of development ideologically is to spread what he calls the logic of capital across the country uh, and, you know, remove uh, what he sees still as some of the retrograde features of uh, Chinese society, which are holding the country back from, you know, this development and rejuvenation that the party sees itself as undertaking. Uh, In other and, words, and notice, a lot of the Maoist elements, right? Well, but also also the nationalist elements, right? Remember, both those traditions come from uh, the students of Sun right. Yat-sen, and the principles that were being promoted there, re- sort of republicanism, nationalism, and Chinese rejuvenation, mm-hmm. Um those were shared by both sides. You know, when, when we discuss communists and nationalists in the Chinese context, it, it, if we're going to think about that in terms of size of government, um, I, I think that's very clearly going to fail. You right. know, what we're talking about here, the distinguishing features, I think, probably have a lot to do more with uh, geopolitical alliances. Um, to an extent, sure, uh, ideological differences. Sure, right. The communists were using a Marxist conception of power, for example. Right. Um, but, you know, when, when it comes to the the necessary measures to develop the country, we see that a lot of the East Asian models ended up converging in important mm-hmm. ways. Right. Right. And I think uh, there's a Leninist uh, sort of influence there as well when you think about, you know, um, very clear articulation of ends and very clear sort of, sort of, um, uh, solid, solid, very unchanging ends, but but incredible flexibility of means, right? And and so I think you see that revived in in Deng, um, and and this idea of, you know, sure we will set up a a kind of capitalist enclave in in Shanghai or Shenzhen. What difference does it make? You know, we're still, um, this is still ultimately this this communist party project, um. 
uh, yeah, for the, note for the though, sake of the whole country. Note, though, that um, the party's own position uh, is that they they have something of a united front government. So um, the the system, the way that the party thinks of it, is kind of a popular dictatorship. Um, and the the reason it's it's not kind of called a socialist dictatorship or a dictatorship of the proletariat is because the public stance is that this involves other classes, such as the kind of uh, the, the national bourgeoisie, other elements of society in the Marxist analysis that are not proletarian. And so, you know, when I talk about how important it is to the party to have a theoretical underpinning for these seeming contradictions. Uh, this is part of what I mean. Why can you have private capital owners um, in a place like Shenzhen that are developing the country? Well, because the party has a very formal structure where this is kind of appropriate for the current stage of Chinese development. Um, Taiwan, obviously, I think would not really have this theoretical structure um, in how they view either their state or the way the country is being developed. But the object level results end up looking similar. So, Ash, I'd like to get your response then to Bruno Macias's idea that China's approach to governing is much more like a theoretical black box uh, governance. Like, like they they sort of are are naturally seeing this thing as this black box dynamic system that they're poking this way and that rather than something where they have of sort of a rationalistic understanding of of the teleological structure um and these sort of like these views seem to be in tension I'd, I'd be curious to hear your take on that yeah i mean i i think that's likely true in practice uh you know when you talk to anyone who has you know worked in china um, or, or had significant on-the-ground experience there, one of the things that comes up repeatedly is how difficult it is to get information. Even at the central level, it is very difficult to understand what's going on in organizations that aren't directly under your control. Um, I suspect one of the incentives for the party's uh, you know, strong bent toward top-down centralization is because uh, its leadership feels that this is pretty much the only way they can know what's going on, really, in the country. Um, and, you know, I don't know if this is true or not, but maybe there's a way in which this focus on empirical learning is kind of um, also an adaption to this. You know, you you don't have a lot of idea of what's going on, uh, you know, in, in the minds or in the networks of maybe corrupt local party officials or private companies, but you can see how the country as a whole is developing. And so you you would, you would set these metrics for national achievements, and uh, by necessity then, you try and create the institutions for that local action to occur. Um, I mean, this is l really the logic of, of the periphery of local action. If you do not have access from the center... Um, to local knowledge, then you run into the calculation problem. Um, what's happening, though, is that we're seeing in uh, China that you can essentially have something like a planned economy uh, that leaves a lot of the means uh, to that local knowledge, you know, so you're not kind of centrally appointing employees or resources, you're allowing the markets to do that. But the markets are being utilized as tools toward a certain end. 
Um, note that Taiwan is also doing this in a way, right? The, the logic, for example, of um, an app that came out of, uh, I, I believe it was created in collaboration between um, pro, like programmers in Taiwan with assistance from their digital uh, ministry led by uh, Audrey Tang, um, who comes from a programming background. Uh, and the logic here was that if you had central coordination in making information available about the supply of masks at various hospitals, um, then you could have, you know, you could diminish pressure uh, in places where there were too few. You could have sales or transfers between hospitals. You were allowing local action to occur by you know, providing the mechanisms for communication and coordination from the center. Um, well, th this yeah. comes back to the trust issue, I think, like the, this difference between Taiwan and China and, and in particular the difficulty of getting information in China. Um, a lot of that, like, you know, if you think about how we get information in the West, it's, well, you Google something and you read newspapers, right? Right. And, and you read all these publicly available sources of information. There's all kinds of organizations producing all kinds of information about all kinds of things. Um, and, and that sort of constitutes what we kind of call in the West the free press, uh, though I hesitate to use that terminology, but, um, right. It's, but, it's but, the brand. Like, but like China, China in a way, like because of their geopolitical position, isn't necessarily, and, and their internal political position and their trust position, isn't necessarily in a position to allow that level of public discussion of, re, of what's going on, which means that they are going to have that information problem. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at the American situation and and you actually start looking at the relationships between a lot of these platforms and um, federal power, does it really start looking so different, right? A lot mm -hmm. of the initial research for what becomes the Google algorithm comes through public funding. Google mm -hmm. has ongoing relationships with the U.S. federal government. Um, it is not owned maybe by the U.S. federal government, uh, but it is certainly intertwined. Um and when we're seeing, you know, initiatives like the open database uh, for coronavirus pandemic response, um, we're seeing data made available that is going to be used in particular um, by a lot of these major private tech companies. Uh, I saw Apple, for example, was starting to develop apps kind of as part of their uh, contributions to pandemic response. Um, so, all right, we don't have necessarily an agency created directly by the government, but we certainly have like, uh, government collaboration with private sector. And the result is a centralized platform, which is collecting data and making data available to the population at large and informing the ways that they coordinate with each other. This is the structure of the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, so you know, we can talk all day about ideological differences, but I think that there is an internal logic at play here um, that starts to create this kind of convergence. And I would suspect that it's a lot more useful for analysis to look at the internal logic of some of those material structures and the incentives of their real owners than to discuss the ideological differences as such, or maybe yeah. we see them even as fruits of the structure rather than causes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wasn't intending to get into ideological thing here. I'm just pointing out, like, you know, China's lack of a relatively robust 
WordPress ecosystem, which is like fairly directly a consequence of of its position sort of competing against the United States. Like as soon as it allowed any kind of press ecosystem or NGO ecosystem or, or any like d- stuff like that, the, the party would be losing authority there. And, uh, and foreign actors in particular, uh, Western actors would be kind of infringing on, uh, on things that it considers to be its territory. Yeah. Well, we and, saw a crackdown against Western journalists in China, right. uh, during it, this period. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's like, okay, they, they are actually in this, again, this, this low trust, so semi-adversarial mm-hmm. relationship with a bunch of sort of functionality that they might allow in their society, but, but can't right now due to geopolitical competition. And I, I also wonder whether this actually explains some of the differences we see between sort of um, communist China and Taiwan, um, just their different geopolitical positions. Like Taiwan is sort of much more comfortably, um, it it's not sort of under assault by, by um democratic forces right it uh whereas well, but in a sense it's under assault by communist it's, forces. right right but the structure the structure of of the things you have to worry about changes depending on like the the material structure of of your allies and adversaries mm-hmm. and and so you know communist china very much has to be paranoid about anything democratic going on because dem- democratic things are this I mean, from their perspective, and to some degree in reality, democratic things are this tool of Western imperialism. And so they have to be paranoid about that, whereas they don't necessarily have to be paranoid about some other things. Um, And then that leads to a big difference in in the material structure between China and, and say, Taiwan, which I don't think has to worry as much. Well, and Taiwan's, uh, you know, the the, some of the people institutions of that are part of Taiwan's government now actually came out of worries about Taiwan's political position. So, um, you know, how did all these programmers suddenly start working in the Taiwanese government? What happened was uh, that th- there were protests ongoing uh, some years ago, um, particularly through what was called the Sunflower Movement. Mm-hmm. Um, there was at that time a, a trade deal uh, in the works, and there was a lot of concern among parts of the Taiwanese state, parts of the population, that it would open them up too much um, to mainland China and to the CCP. And right. so, uh, you know, w- without going into the entire story, the result was that a lot of people got politically involved and ultimately became involved in the government. Uh, it, you know, in particular, there was this community called uh, GovZero, uh, so G0V. Um, and this was a programmer and a hacker community which had been looking at t- uh, open source tools for governance. Um, they, they wanted to basically come up with ways for governments to not just like receive feedback, but actually kind of be able to determine shelling points to uh, allow productive communication to occur uh, between people as the country was trying to develop policies. They were thinking in terms of like forking policies and even forking government um, rather than just kind of going through electoral cycles. Uh, and th- this subculture um, ended up being reflected in the culture of the country's digital ministry. Um, but that all happened because of geopolitical concerns. And so you can, yeah, you're, you're right. There, there's this way in which um, these pre-existing struggles or rivalries 
end up being reflected in the factional politics that make it possible for state capacity to improve, right? This is not a case of just building new agencies or machines. You actually have to have people coming in who coordinate with each other. And in America itself, when you see those times in its history where the center is most coordinated, it's because the people manning those institutions uh, have often come through some struggle together, the Civil War, World War II, or the American Revolution, and are as a result a very coordinated governing class. This is the America, you know, of, of Eisenhower, for example. Um, there were obviously still factional rivalries, but um, the a, a lot of the checks and balances that were formally in place were not as necessary. Well, and I suppose the specter, right, that we're talking about geopolitically for Taiwan of the potential, you know, at any moment in some sense for a communist invasion of the island, right? And you saw you saw in the last presidential election that the the question about information warfare and uh, fake news maybe in some sense uh a outgrowth of that discourse uh in western democracies that that the concern about um you know who is really being controlled by the chinese communist party and um and what influence um do they have over elections and, and other aspects of of taiwan uh, that may be a a, a sort of a specter that that unites and, and sort of focuses uh, the need for state capacity. Right. And uh, I, I think that it's useful here to draw on Stephen Pimentel's uh, recent piece um, for the magazine, uh, which was responding to our pandemic prompt, where he made the distinction between preparedness and competency. Um, America and a number of other countries had preparedness in you know the material sense they had institutional measures to respond to pandemics what they did not have was uh competency at the center taiwan had competency at the center and so they were able to utilize their resources more effectively despite being yeah an island despite being you know uh, across the water from its its major uh rival and sometimes opponent, they were still able, and, and maybe even to a degree because of that, they were forced to be able mm -hmm. to coordinate from the center. Uh, America in particular has not been under pressure for some decades now, has not needed to coordinate much from the center. Um, and now we realize, uh, you know, that when push comes to shove, when a sudden crisis occurs, um, that that coordination can't just be manufactured uh, out of nothing. It has to have been built already. And so there has to be, uh, you know, there have to be live relationships at play here. There has to be knowledge that's being handed down, um, you know, from one generation to another. Uh, I, I think that one of the most shocking stories I read about this was, uh, you know, the incident where in the 2000s um, federal structures realized that they had forgotten how to manufacture a, comp a chemical component, I believe it was, of nuclear weapons mm -hmm. and had to spend uh, a, a lot right. of money essentially relearning this. And so there, there's a point where you even have so much knowledge that you, you don't remember what you remember. This question we uh, 
raised a moment ago about the black box versus a more rationalized uh, structure where you, you kind of try to understand and control, maybe you'd call it like the more traditional communist central planning structure. How does that relate to um, the more traditional, maybe pragmatic uh, Anglo-American idea around uh, the free market in the sort of invisible hand, right? So it's like mm-hmm. you don't, it, to the point again about the free press, you know, all of this information is sort of just out there. Um, the idea being that there doesn't have to be a coordination mechanism. And in fact, a, cord- a central coordination mechanism would in some sense be detrimental to the efficiency of the whole system because if you can have... Well, an overly micromanaging one at least. Mm-hmm. Well, the extreme, right? The extreme uh, argument or, or the logical conclusion would be that, um, no, the free market uh, is the best way to uh, arrange the thing. Well, and the question here, I think, is what do we mean by the free market? Um, you know, in economic terms, that was usually a very precise notion, for Adam Smith, uh, it meant a market that was free of rent-seeking. Mm-hmm. But the measures you sometimes need to take to fight rent-seeking are uh, quite interventionist and wouldn't match free market in the sense of that like maybe American conservative politics thinks of it, right. where it's essentially a market in which the government isn't doing things. So you could theoretically have a market controlled by one or two firms um, that have you know, oligopolistic or monopolistic power over the industry. Uh, But the government doesn't do anything about this. And so the market is free in some sense, despite there being uh, extreme control over it. Uh, I think this is very clearly like a useless uh, spook, essentially. Like this notion doesn't tell us anything useful analytically. And it's not really a useful strategic goal to work toward either. Um, well, what's what's happened there is is like it seems related to the general transformation that happened sort of through the middle of the 20th century and, and the 70s. You know, before that time, there was kind of this perhaps useful notion there. What you're describing is the Adam Smith notion of the market free of rent seeking. But then as we got this kind of like d- hollowing out of the public center um and and the rise of these large scale kind of quasi public quasi private interests um the you know any powerful institution produces some level of propaganda that reshapes how people think about things and and one of the effects that that transformation had was sort of reinterpreting all of that kind of past adam smith free market ideas yeah in, I, in in the more right. like similar ideological version of it that, version that you had described. Well, I, I tend to think that you know, I haven't done a deep dive on this at all, but I tend to think that the free market, the way that we think about it in that kind of popular discourse, probably does come back to something like the '60s or '70s. Um, right. That, that's when what I'm do saying. we start talking? You know, in the era of the trust busters. Uh, when you had people like Teddy Roosevelt, when you have these populist figures in the American government working to break up companies like Standard Oil, this was not seen as like destroying the market. Uh, I mean, maybe you had people at that time already uh, claiming that it did or that it was stifling enterprise or the like. Um, But 
it was clearly not there was not this monopolistic definition of the free market as merely being a lack of government intervention. I think if we're going to think about the market in a useful way, you know, what is the market? It is um, private actors acting on local knowledge spontaneously, like with without um, ma direct management uh, by the state, though perhaps using accessing certain common resources and public goods, which are made available or managed through the state, such as data. Um, and, and, but by private initiative, um, creating uh, projects, companies, organizations, uh, building products, uh, developing things that are, you know, and that th this is done for profit, this is done, uh, coordinating with other people, and not being part of a, a centralized state program, maybe. Um, sure, uh, this is obviously a useful uh, concept. And I think we see that in a lot of cases, um, when we're talking about material development, markets are the uh, ideal way for people to utilize knowledge. Um, but, you know, two things come to mind here. First, the market itself is actually a tool which is at least partially created by central action. Um, markets in the Western sense assume functional uh, property, law, order, uh, institutions. Um, and, and, you know, there's a way in which you can think of a market in that sense as actually being a, a coordination between center and periphery. Certain prerequisites right. are put in place so that people on the local or individual level can act on the knowledge that they possess uniquely and develop wealth. The other thing, though, is that certain markets actually give rise naturally to uh, more monopolistic or oligopolistic forms of competition. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the internet is working this way. Um, railroads uh, earlier in American history um, ended up operating in this way. And there you have an example where the outcomes of, mar of the market themselves end up either having a private company without competition governing a sector of, you know, the country's economic life, or you have state intervention where it begins to regulate things because it judges that that private actor cannot um, optimally do so for the country's interests. So when we start thinking of markets as a tool ones which have many different kinds of outcomes, right. you know, one market is not like another, I think this becomes a much more useful way to think about it. But that also destroys the the sacral aura that it's sure. had ideologically in some places. Right. When I was saying the free market and the invisible hand in the context of, you know, this dynamic system that can share information, I'm I'm not using it in the, the sort of neoliberal sense, but but this classical understanding. Yes, I think, and I think um, that that is a more useful understanding. I think when we, because it, it, under that logic, right, the, the monopolistic or the trust, uh, the, the power that, that small trusts uh, of um, individuals and corporations have over the market is detrimental to the free market, right? And so, um, I think one of the one mm -hmm. of the big questions that comes out of the question of monopoly in the age of the internet is sort of like, okay, so assume that Google search, in and of itself, is 
a useful monopoly, right? Because there's there's some monopolistic aspect uh, to the way that internet search works and you know there's really going to be one company because they have the sort of proprietary knowledge of how best to do page rank and all of these other things um okay so we take that for granted now the question becomes well does that mean that google as a company uh is also uh should be should be sort of normatively in the in our sense of uh the public interest of in the economy should be able to control YouTube and to control Android and all of these other um, these other businesses that it may in fact be able to run at a loss because of the uh, tremendous amount of profit that it generates from its search monopoly. Um, I think that may be the sort of uh, the sort of critical issue around internet monopoly. Yeah, I, I think that um like when we talk about it like that it becomes obvious that uh particular forms of development and wealth and particular actions based on knowledge particularly particular actions rather by a certain person or organization are the the more useful thing to look at in terms of what makes a market work um rather than a market being thought of as fundamentally uh, government not intervening in economic life, thinking of a market as being a system where actors uh, freely and efficiently coordinate with each other based on their local knowledge uh, and advantage and so on, um, helps us to understand it a lot better. And then when we look at a particular um, resource or form of wealth, like, say, the internet or digital platforms, then we can start to ask the questions, okay, well, what are these things built for? What is the value of them to the country? And so, the, you know, now we're applying this systems level thinking to the country as a whole. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the country itself is, is a system with ends. Uh, digital platforms are clearly, I think, a very important resource. Um, they allow for information to be accessed and spread and stored like nothing else in human history. They allow people to coordinate uh, more effectively than, you know, if, if they had to rely on things, say, phone books to look up information or a library to access, you know, specialized knowledge. Um, you know, this is an important resource, but how does it serve the country? Uh, I, I think that there was a much more natural tendency towards that kind of question uh, in the era when something like the American system was in place. Mm -hmm. um, these kinds of, these successful companies, this, this localized economic action is important uh, because its uh, development is, you know, part of the country's development. But then if you have uh, an economic development which starts undermining the system as a whole, um, for example, by transferring a lot of the country's wealth uh, in, you know, into its sector. Look at the way that finance, for example, has cannibalized large parts of the economy. Um, we have the productive economy uh, offshored, and we have finance uh, both gaining power th as such, and even financialization of parts of the economy that were formerly productive. Um, like Ford, uh, GE, you know, all these, a lot of these companies have now financial components uh, to their conglomerates. Well, now we can ask ourselves, uh, 
is it actually good for the country as a whole to have that much power transferred to this one industry that was not even considered truly productive until, you know, the last 30 or 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, you know, I, I suspect that even the term the economy can become something of a spook. Uh, maybe we should actually be asking about companies and industries rather than the economy. And and that might start to get to the real heart of what kinds of wealth um, our economic policy should be focusing on developing. Yeah, and this comes back again to this relationship between the center and the periphery, which which like the, the whole underlying idea of your discussion of center versus periphery and and this sort of synthesis between them is this kind of teleological, functionally organized idea where where we're talking about something like the national interest or the interest of of, you know, the center or the empire or the public or whatever we want to call it. And and that thing is sort of organizing the rest of society around some kind of functional accounting of, you know, what's this part good for? Oh, that part is is actually harmful to the whole. So we're going to suppress it. This part is good. So we're going to support it. Um, you know, we're going to reshape the laws or reshape the, the, the institutional structures or reshape the little subcultures to create things that are happening that are that are functional within the this larger uh holistic context of of the whole and um and that idea i think i i think that's sort of like one of the central ideas that that really needs to come back um and and that we're really talking about here that you know, especially in this economics stuff, you know, everyone's been talking about economics in terms of these, like, you know, uh, the, you know, all value is private and subjective. Mm -hmm. You can't critique it. You can't discuss it at all. There's no structure to it. Right. Uh, You know, this, this goes out of economics and also into politics. You know, there's no rational discussion of values, for example, Mm -hmm. Um, this, this sort of, this idea of the denial of that functional order, uh, it kind of permeates our entire political worldview right now. And and that's like a fairly serious problem because it co- it goes along with not being able to build uh, an actually functionally organized society that works. Yeah, right. And, I and, wonder, and this, go ahead. Yeah, I wonder too what the relationship between the way that we think about these things and our kind of current trajectory is, right? Is it... Uh, perhaps one could say, I mean, the new numbers that are coming out around uh, the kind of contraction in the Chinese economy suggest something different. But for a number of years, uh, the incredibly high year-to-year growth rate of China, um, you know, if we had seen similar numbers in the United States and in North America, would we have been able to get more into the mode of thinking about the whole system in a positive some way would we be e- would it be easier to think about the pie as expanding and you know less about whether i get my piece of the pie or making sure that my piece is as large as possible even if it's to the detriment of the you know some sort of coordination uh at the center so yeah this is this comes back to a, a discussion we've been having a few times over and over recently about this relationship between material growth and the the sort of 
general ideological and narrative understanding that we're all in this together in kind of a functional organization that that has it is positive sum um and the actual institutional structures of coordination that make that real like what is the relationship between those things if you have declining growth like declining real growth like i think we've had for a little while now mm-hmm. um or at least it, stagnation yeah at it, the very it, least. it creates this this uh feeling of you know zero sum relation to the rest of society which harms the systems of coordination and the systems of coordination breaking down then also actually contribute to the stagnation. And then mm-hmm. you can imagine the opposite feedback loop uh, of, uh, you know, well, when you have growth, you can have everyone kind of working together. It contributes to this idea of everyone being together. But I think like like there's this core variable. Well, I, maybe it's it's these relationships aren't that complex, but perhaps too complex to just like easily describe right now. Uh, but but I think it's like sort of multi-way ca- causation there for sure. And, but I think it's also, I don't think the way you would restart such a process is by like somehow getting growth. I think, I think one of the key insights that, or key ideas that I would try to add to that discussion is um, just because you have growth and you have this feeling that everyone is in there together doesn't mean you're actually doing the work of building the central institution that's mm-hmm. capable of coordinating the thing. In some sense, your your complacency, the the, the growth can create complacency that allow that allows you to or, or prompts you to rack up political debt in the sense of like allowing your political order to rot a little bit. So that when like you get hit by some kind of crunch time situation like this coronavirus pandemic. Uh, you suddenly realize, oh, we hadn't been maintaining the structures of coordination that allowed us to keep growth going. It's kind of like which is more fundamental uh, is the economic growth. And I mean that not in terms of, you know, magic numbers, but actual productive real growth. Is is that more fundamental to uh, these feedback loops or is some sort of outlook or civilizational developmental path or institutional path? Uh, is that what has to happen first? And then that leads downstream to uh, the, the positive feedback. Yeah, well, and I mean, let's think about the fact that uh, growth then is not even necessarily a good thing in every case. Right. Uh, you know, as we were kind of touching on earlier, um, by all accounts, the main winners uh, of you know the, the shutdown and the resulting bailouts and so on, everything that's going on right now in terms of economic policy are going to be the same institutions that have been chiefly responsible for the gutting of the U.S., uh, of the American hard economy, right? Um, mm-hmm. When, uh, if, you know, we, we have so many businesses shutting down that are unable to maintain themselves through this, um, the private equity firms are already... Uh, kind of have their eye on on the one hand, perhaps uh, getting new liquidity somehow through the bailout. On the other hand, all this capital suddenly coming to the market, which could not be used, those firms will start buying up and expanding their power. Now, those sectors will have growth in a sense, but that growth is going to be uh, due to the short-term gains made by um, companies that don't really have an interest uh, in the country restoring its uh, economic or political um, capacity uh, and and its actual material basis. So this growth may actually be harmful, 
for the country as a whole. And in, in that case, we could maybe even think about the fact that, um, okay, well, we're, we're now thinking of this in terms of industry serving the market in, in this kind of right. general sense, basically defined by GDP. Maybe we should think about how markets are ser- should can serve certain industries. Right. Uh, you have industries that are currently um, either non-existent because things have been offshored or, you know, weighed down by oligopolistic power. Perhaps uh, we should actually consider those industries strategically important and talk about how we can create markets in industries rather than having uh, industries make up parts of a market. Right. But I think by growth, we're not just talking about you know, line go up in the context of the stock sure. market. We want, we're, we're clearly in a, at least a stagnation in terms of real growth and probably in, in some sort of contraction. And so then the question is, um, it, it, you know, there's no way to really get out of it, The question is basically, um, can we get out of the sort of loss aversion, uh, you know, cutting off just a bigger piece of the pie factionalism um, within a real material situation that is contracting mm. or that is at least stagnant. Well, it, it sounds it sounds like an obvious move, but it also sounded obvious in 2008 and nine when when the banks caused a global economic crisis. The result was um, the the rescue of the economy through, you know, repeated quantitative easing. Um, the banks and financial power in general has only grown stronger since then. Um, I, I suspect that, you know, both the formal model um, being used here by decision makers, but also the marginal interests of the decision makers involved um, make actually taking those steps a very different question from just having the the knowledge or the logic in mind of how it could potentially be yeah done. i mean my view here is that it's the institutions that are sort of causally upstream of this stuff and and the the feeling of general growth uh kind of just contributes into cooperation with the institutions but if you have enough sort of centralized political will uh you you can restart the machine by like if you have a lot of centralized political will and you want to restart the machine i think the thing you do is you invest in coordination and political order rather than investing mm-hmm. in in sort of like liquidity or something right, right. and and like because pouring money into the economy the problem wasn't i mean in, in some very narrow sense the problem was like okay it's a liquidity crisis or something but the well that was only the, the problem in the context of the thing continuing to operate as it had previously right exactly and, and, but like the underlying issue that's actually causing the stagnation like you you can sort of right. keep it pumped full of money but right. like the underlying issue actually causing the stagnation is is these uh these large scale factions kind of getting more and more of a stranglehold on different parts of ec- the uh, different industries mm-hmm. and different parts of of the the political machinery right and and the thing being unable to coordinate around any kind of strategic holistic growth anymore and and so the thing that's actually causally upstream of growth is a strong center 
that has a strong political order and doesn't have to worry too much about these these factions getting in its way and has prudence and and good strategy of like how to actually build things like i think i i I don't know how much it can be made like i don't think there's any like hands-off silver bullet to this thing i think no i I don't think so either someone someone has to have the power to coordinate things and they have to have the wisdom to coordinate things well yeah so here's the thing right in a real uh structural reform of you know the the governance structures and the powerful economic structures in american life which is a tall order um but there are winners from those kinds of changes as well as losers and uh each time you know that the american state has had to make those kinds of decisions whether it was after the revolution whether it was when constructing the american system whether it was uh, in in the World War II and the post-war era, mm-hmm. um, what people have been able to do uh, from the political side is identify and collaborate with uh, winners in the private sector as well. Um, and yes, there there is a a sense, you know, people will complain here. Oh, you're just picking winners. Well, in in a sense, but but well, but let's think further than that. Um, the magic of you know center and periphery acting dynamically is that people have the chance to voluntarily participate based on the strengths that they have. Um, you know, we we published the piece on machine tooling uh, and and how uh, South Korea developed. Uh, there, you had companies uh, building. Uh, factories and the like, and taking advantage of the government's role as first buyer when that industry was being developed. In the U.S., uh, companies or or just even private innovators who wanted to take advantage of um, you know funding that was available for those fields were able to do so. So it's not this kind of you know setting up of a, a fake economy. There is a real collaboration that goes on there, but. Uh, those who are coordinating America as a country and a system need a very clear view of what the end is meant to look like mm-hmm. uh, and, and how the, the, the system overall functions in a healthy way. And in that sense, yes, there is a selection factor where, you know, sub-level so-called winners that win at the expense of the country have to be weeded out or, you know, need to transfer their efforts uh, two uh, ventures that are for the health of the country as a whole. And I, yeah. I think that when you start looking at that as a collaborative effort, um, then this is how you start to get opportunities arise to actually make those structural changes. So we're, we're coming up on an hour and a half. I think we've been having a pretty good discussion here. If you guys have any final thoughts, we can get into those topics. But I think... Uh, we might as well wrap yeah, it up. I at think some point that here. this has been a pretty good uh, and ex- expansive discussion. Great. I think we had a lot of fun. Uh, I, I very much enjoyed uh, the contributions from you guys. I, these are all very important topics that we need to be discussing more. Yeah. And I'd like to say that, you know, the, this, uh, the way I was thinking about this piece was as creating a model that we need to uh, build on in terms of, you know, specific examples of these kinds of dynamics mm-hmm. and uh, thinking more about how this can be developed even on a theoretical level. And so this isn't really the summing up 
of a bunch of stories. It, it's more kind of a step toward broader discussion. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's a important piece of our sort of burgeoning overall paradigm. Uh, like I, I do feel sort of one of the one of the big pillars of what we're doing here is we are trying to take all of these different pieces of of wisdom that we're assembling and synthesize a holistic paradigm for how to think about the whole problem and that that actually has well-developed answers um to our big questions right now and, and this has definitely been part of it so yeah thanks so much guys uh, i hope the audience enjoyed it um we'll yeah with, yeah. Next time. with next respect time, to the with respect to the paradigm it's not the end it's not even the beginning of the end but perhaps it is the end of the beginning or, or maybe well, just yeah, the maybe. start of the beginning. I think we're still at the start of the beginning, but yeah. Anyways, all right. That's Thanks, all everyone. Now. Thanks, guys. <laughs>